Welcome to another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. My name is H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and the chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto and the chief quality officer for the Baptist system. Hey, everybody. I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Good morning. I'm Brad Parsons, vice president and market leader for West Tennessee and Arkansas. And we're excited to have you all today. Well, as as Brad said, we are so excited to have another one of our uh, Cleveland Clinic uh, friends with us. We've had several folks from the Cleveland Clinic on our podcast, and today we are honored to have Sarah Sedlowski. Sarah is an audiologist, and she is also the Associate Chief Improvement Officer for the uh, for the Cleveland Clinic Foundation. And uh, Sarah, I have to ask, you know, why I have an audiologist on on here. My wife says I had this thing called selective hearing. And, you know, maybe offline we can talk about that a little bit. But uh, anyway, of course, I'm jesting. But uh, Sarah, (laughs) we're so glad that you're here. And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Glad to and glad to talk about selective hearing anytime. It's a very common condition. Um, So I'm Sarah Sedlowski. I am Associate Chief Improvement Officer and also Audiology Director of the Hearing Implant Program at the Cleveland Clinic. I started my training, my clinical training as a doctor of audiology and uh, practiced primarily with cochlear implants for a number of years. Uh, I've been at the Cleveland Clinic now for almost 13 years. And after about 10 years, I was introduced to continuous improvement. Uh, We were having a problem with not being able to get our patients connected to our care. We knew that candidacy criteria for cochlear implants were expanding. But then we also knew that we weren't seeing our volumes go up and we were super frustrated, couldn't figure out why. So we participated in a program called SOLVE or Solutions for Value Enhancement that we have here at the clinic. And having that really methodological approach and knowing that we were doing some structured uh, problem solving really changed for us how we were able to practice, how we're able to see our patients, the size of our program tripled. And I just fell in love. I thought this is so amazing that we can have this kind of impact and do this kind of work um, in ways that I never knew that we could. And uh, I went back to school for my MBA. And after I graduated, this role became available and the rest is history. That That's a really great story. And I'm glad you, you led with that. I was you know, very interested that uh, you know, I don't know enough about audiology or, you know, and and how it fits into the wider aspect of healthcare, but I was really interested to see how an audiologist got into that role as a, a associate uh, chief improvement officer. Um, and, and you started to tell us just a, a little bit about some of the problems you were having um, and how you used um, lean and these methods in order to, to solve them. Um, but take us through that a little bit more. Uh, I think most of us just don't understand what sort of uh, problems y'all deal with uh, from that um, side of things, and uh, you know, and what other things have you done with this new skill set you've learned, and, and how to prove them? Gosh, that's a really great question. Um, what's been exciting for me to see in audiology in recent years is that there's much more interest broadly in practice efficiency, and that's really being driven by the fact that only two percent of people who can benefit from a cochlear implant actually receives one. 
And so obviously that's a huge gap and it's really heartbreaking that we're not able to get fantastic life-changing life care to the people who need it. And so that's what motivated us. Uh, we knew as a team that we wanted to see and to help as many patients as we possibly could, but we just didn't have the skill set, honestly. We had the passion, we had the motivation, we had the interest, but we didn't know how to attack the problem in a way that we were getting to the real root cause. And so we had lots of activity, lots of things we were working on, but we we still just had flat numbers in terms of how many people were making it into our program. Um, and I'm seeing similar concern now. Years later, we went through the program in 2016, and I just came back from some cochlear implant conferences, and there are many presentations now of people starting to embrace continuous improvement and lean methodology and really ask the tough questions about how do we do what we love to do better? Uh, it was very empowering for us. And actually, the the countermeasure that we applied was so simple. It was just a overhead transparency. We printed a bunch of them. You laid it on top of a hearing test, and it let people know, yes, we want to see them for a cochlear implant evaluation. So it took the mm -hmm. onus off of the other providers to have to understand cochlear implants or know when to make a referral. Yeah. It just made it simple. It, it cleared the path, and they knew who we wanted to see. And it's just been... Um, like a fire was lit under us ever since. I think what was most exciting actually about the experience was how empowered the team felt and the fact that it set us up to be able to solve subsequent problems that came down the line. Right now we're uh, dealing with long wait times, which is you know a good problem to have because it means we have higher demand, but it also means that we're not able to see as many people as, as we want to, but we have the skill set now to be able to tackle that in a meaningful way. Dr. Sidlowski, I, I really appreciate those applications, and those are great examples of the work. Could you really, could you talk us through the Cleveland Clinic model for improvement, uh, really how you think about that model and, and what that looks like? Sure, I'd be happy to. This is, this is how I spend my time thinking about the Cleveland Clinic improvement model and seeing it in action. So we're very proud of this model because, number one, I think that it's very easy to understand and to grasp. Of course, it's harder to apply, and that's where we come in. Um, but it's really consists of four systems. So first of all is organizational alignment. Second is visual management. Third is problem solving and then standardization. So it's really a system that allows us to ask what matters most. How are we doing today in terms of what matters most? And then what's getting in the way? What problems are we facing? What are the barriers that we have that are preventing us from achieving what matters most to us? And then um, once we're able to solve for those problems and get the, the one best way, then we put standards in place so that we're able to make sure everyone's using that best way, using it consistently. The other piece of our model that I think is really important is that it describes both tools and behaviors. And if you look at the model and the way that it's laid out in its one page format, proportionally, the tool section is much smaller than the behaviors. And I think that's really, really important because when people think of continuous improvement, especially people like me who come into it with perhaps without the technical background, I think they immediately start thinking about tools. You know, what tool do I need to have? Like that's gonna be the magic that makes it happen. But the magic is actually in the behaviors and interacting with those tools in a really meaningful way. And so that's where we're spending a lot of our time coaching across the enterprise right now, is how can our leaders best interact and use those tools to be most effective? 
So that leads me to the last piece of our improvement model, which is that those behaviors are broken out based in three dimensions, leaders leading leaders, leaders leading teams, and then uh, members of a team or part of a team. And what's really important about that component is that it describes behaviors that allow us to have executives focused on strategy, and then uh, leaders who are leading teams of people focusing more on how do we operationalize that strategy. And then lastly, making sure that we have that uh, where the value is really coming from at the individual contributor level. How are they making sure that those daily and weekly activities drive the higher level strategy of the organization? And, and Sarah, I really enjoyed the uh, the slide deck that you, that you sent us, and uh, it was really, really good and informative. And And you guys. You guys have really simplified it. You break it down into objectives and, and key um, uh, key results, results. Mm -hmm. objectives yes. and key results. T talk to us a little a little bit about that. And and mm -hmm. and I was very interested in how that you know the the key results one step above is really going to be the objective one step below. Talk to and, and creating that alignment. Talk to us a little bit about that. Sure, that's right. So uh, objectives and key results are an important part of our organizational alignment system within the improvement model. So this is how we uh, communicate to the organization what matters most, what are our biggest priorities. And those objectives and key results start at the level of the CEO, and then they're cascaded all the way down to the individual contributor. Um, ideally, we also have connections that are happening horizontally across teams. Uh, I think it's important that I emphasize it's not just a top down. We have a lot of bilateral uh, bidirectional rather communication that needs to happen so that important information makes it from the people doing the work up to our executive leaders and back again. So we use that system, first of all, to communicate purpose. So at an executive level, we want to set high level strategic priorities. So some of our objectives are things like be the best place to receive health care and be the best place to work in healthcare. Um, and then at every level below that, we have the opportunity to say, how am I going to help make that happen? So that every one of our 70,000 plus caregivers at the Cleveland Clinic know that the work that they do on a regular basis ties in. So in a, from the technical sense, then what we do is we have this objective of be the best place to work in healthcare or be the best place to receive care. The key results will describe how we're going to achieve that purpose. Now, these are not activities. This is not make a website or hold a training. These are things that are really metrics that let us know, are we making progress toward our goal? Um, and then, like you said, those key results at the executive level become the objective for the next level down. And the reason that's important, number one, is it communicates, you know, where do we need to be putting our time, effort, and resources? And it's basically like saying, all right, you've indicated that this is what you need to achieve, leader of mine. Here's how I'm going to help you. I'm going to make that my objective, and I'm going to figure out how we deliver on that. And then my direct reports are going to take those key results and say, okay, I hear that's what's most important to you. My key results will help you achieve it. Um, and so it's that communication and really also empowerment for problem solving to figure out how do we close the gap we have between where we are today and where we want to be. You know, one of the things you included in those slides was, um, I guess, uh, 
common stumbling blocks that people have with trying to implement um, objectives and key results. Can you take us through a few of those? The, the one that really stood out to me was choosing too many objectives. I think we are guilty of that. Um, yeah. I know I am. I know I do not prioritize well with my team what they should be working on. Um, and and without that alignment, you know, the, the team doesn't know what to do and they will tend to do what's what's easiest for them rather than what may be best for the organization. So take us through some of the stumbling blocks and, and things you've learned. Sure, absolutely. Um, and I think it's important to emphasize we're still learning. OKRs are a journey for sure. And I think each year we get better and stronger and more effective. One of the things that's probably most important is, and I hear this question a lot, is how can I focus just on three to five things? You know, we have a whole business to run. We need to be able to focus on everything. Um, but we all know you can't do everything well if you're focusing on everything at once. So OKRs are one part of that management system. OKRs are where we focus for our big strategic objectives, the things that are complex, that maybe we don't know how we're going to solve, we're unclear about how do we close the gap. And then we also have scorecards that are more of our metrics that we have to make sure we're sustaining. Um, for the most part, we're just making sure we're on track. They might need little tweaks or adjustments. We're kind of keeping our eye on it. We often refer to those as our watch metrics. Our OKRs are our drive metrics. Those are the things that we're going to really put the gas on, that we're putting time and energy and resources to making sure we move the needle. Um, and so those are the things where you need to just have three to five. And you can imagine, you know, even in our daily life, if I said I'm going to train for a marathon and I'm going to be president of my academy and I'm going to be a fantastic parent or family member or spouse, you probably can't do all of those things at one time really well. And I think it's the same thing when we talk about healthcare and about our business. We have to choose what are we going to focus on right now so that we can successfully achieve it um, in a reasonable amount of time and then free ourselves up to work on the next thing. I really like the the dichotomy of drive metrics and watch metrics. Um, can you can you elaborate on that a little bit more and just say like how did so you might have a whole scorecard of watch metrics, but you everybody knows what those few key drive metrics are. That's right. Um, so one of the ways we make sure that everyone knows what the drive metrics are is that we have OKR visual management boards. So as you walk through um, our hospitals and, and our institutes, what you're going to see is the OKRs, the three to five that people are focused on. And then we're going to track the outcome metrics, the process metrics. And then what I actually think is the most important is the row that's the action planning row. So when we say it's a drive metric, we're going to drive this forward. We're going to work on it. It's not just that we're putting a metric up on the wall and crossing our fingers and hoping that we see progress. We're trying to actively understand what the gaps are, what are the barriers, and then using continuous improvement methodology like A3 thinking in some cases or root cause analysis to um, understand what's preventing us from moving and putting plans in place to make that happen. That's the row that I think people do have the hardest time learning how to utilize because that's not our natural tendency. But what's so empowering about it is that it tells caregivers 
you are in charge of our future direction. You're in charge of the patients who come through your door. You're in charge of the environment that you work in and you can control it. It's not a matter of um, it's happening to you and you have to deal with it. You can actually create the environment in which we all all work and succeed. So I think that's that's really exciting. And when people start to recognize, wow, I can do that. Like this is in my hands and I have these tools available and I can interact with this information in a way that changes the numbers. Uh, it's just really amazing to see. So, and you talk about the ownership and engagement there. Um, and so, and do you really attribute this system to increasing that on the front line for your frontline teams? Oh yes, I think without a doubt. Um, so when I have the opportunity to go to Gemba and talk with our teams, probably most consistently when I ask them, what has this done for your team and for the work that you're doing? On a regular basis, people say they're more engaged. Like they're excited, they're energetic, they're happy to know that they can own the improvement. Um, and I, th so yes, I think first thing before you ever really even see the results is that people are engaged just in knowing their voices can be heard and that they're being given the time and the space um, to focus on something they care about and to make a difference. At, at, at Cleveland Clinic, what, what type of calendar are you guys on? Are you guys on a, a January to December or what's your fiscal year, I guess? I'm just. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. So our OKR season, as we often refer to it as, it starts in October. Okay. Um, we have the CEO begins to develop his OKRs. Now, one of the things that we focused on is that this cannot happen in a linear fashion. You can imagine if we went level by level across 70,000 caregivers, we'd spend the whole year just creating OKRs. Mm -hmm. So in the fall, the CEO and his executive team begins to formulate their C um, CEO and ET OKRs. They're having those bi-directional conversations about what matters most, what do we want to make sure we're driving come January. And then uh, those are approved by the board in December. Uh, the executive team finalizes theirs also in December. So by January, everyone else in the organization has visibility to what matters most this year. Uh, around the same time and often in parallel, next level leaders are starting to connect their work. And it does go all the way down to those individual caregivers. And by March 31st, every individual caregiver has submitted their own personal OKRs into our um, our HR system. Each individual. That's correct. Wow. And then, okay, so you start in March. Everybody's got their marching orders um, at that point. How do you track progress over time? And, you know, you only have March to October to understand if you were successful, I guess, until the next planning season starts. How do you fit That's it all right. in? And actually, I think you're highlighting what we see as one of our biggest opportunities is that in an ideal setting, OKRs would really be an ongoing, you know, constantly evolving process. We're still fairly early in our journey. I think we're on year five or six. And so I think it's still important to have those really clear timeframes so that every caregiver knows what to expect and when that's happening. But I would envision that as we evolve and as we get even more adept at using the system, OKRs would be something that change as the year goes on, where we're saying this is not what matters most right now. Something else came up. I need to replace it, move my focus. Um, and so not having it be such a carved in stone, here's our final OKRs, but here's our current OKRs. 
um, and then adjusting as we need to. Um, and that will allow for more flexibility in terms of the amount of time that we have to make those improvements because it will really be ongoing. Uh, you also asked about how we track progress. And I think the most important thing is that that has to be driven by leaders. So we encourage our leaders to do rounding on a very regular basis, at least monthly. Um, and the closer we get to where the work is being done, that starts to become weekly and in some cases even daily um, in order to drive the improvements that we want to see. And then we encourage leaders to make sure that they're asking important questions like, you know, where are we today? Where are we trying to go? What's getting in the way of your progress? When can I expect to see that next step? And it's those kind of conversations that set the expectation that this isn't a check the box exercise. This is really how we do our work. And I'm here to celebrate the successes with you. I'm here to help move the barriers so that you can be successful. Um, and it becomes more of a conversation than a report out. You know, this, this really can stimulate a lot of thinking because I, I was just thinking, you know, on one of your slides you had, okay, the CEO, he wants to decrease serious safety events. And so then the next leader down, okay, we're going to decrease falls with harm and then, you know, cascading on down. But, you know, you start thinking, well, how does a registration clerk, how are they, how am I going to affect serious safety events in this hospital? And it really, it really causes you to start thinking because, you know, sometimes, well, we, we don't believe it, but every, every process that we do affects affects what we're wanting to achieve. So uh, everybody can can play a part, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's that's why at the Cleveland Clinic, we don't have employees. We have caregivers because everybody's involved in the care of all of our patients. And so I think this is just another way that we reinforce that everybody's work matters and every activity they do, every task they perform is ultimately connected to this greater good and helps us achieve the purpose and the vision that we have for the organization. I think it's really empowering, actually. Um, but that also, it's incumbent on leaders to be able to tell that story because many of our individual caregivers, you know, are several levels disconnected from the CEO and the executive team. And they're very focused on, you know, what's the task in front of me today? What's the work I need to get done? And so I think it's up to leaders to paint the picture of how that task and that activity that you're doing uh, connects and and makes it the best place to receive care, or makes it the best place to work in healthcare. And once caregivers recognize that and realize that and, and know that they can contribute, I think that's what makes us more effective because it's not just, you know, a small subset of leaders who are trying to drive big, difficult, complex change it's pulling everybody together in a way that it really is a team of teams and everyone's saying, here's the piece and the part that I can play. So, so talk to me about how your group, you know, associate chief improvement officer ties into those large level organizational objectives that are set. Um, you know, how, how do you, you know, so we have individual projects that you know are tied to the objectives that, Somebody from our uh, improvement group will help us, but not always do I feel like there's a, you know, a, you know, kind of a mesh between the two at the highest level and how improvement 
as the organization is going to go forward and, and really drive these? How, how do you all work with those objectives and help leaders achieve their goals? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so the way that we like to talk about it is that we own the construct and everyone else owns the content. So I'm not necessarily a content expert in safety or quality or patient experience or access or whatever other problem someone's trying to solve. The coach who helped me maybe had never heard about cochlear implants when mm-hmm. he tried to help my team. But what the continuous improvement team can provide is this construct that um, builds the process that's going to be most effective that brings forward the tools that will help guide the work in the most impactful way, that coaches the behaviors of leaders to interact with all of those components in a way that's going to drive change. So our team, even though we don't know the content, what I actually think makes us most powerful and like a, such a valuable contribution to the organization is that the content doesn't matter. We don't have to know the content. And we can go in using established processes and be able to see the opportunities and then connect our caregivers to the best way to achieve those opportunities. Yeah, and, and part and, and part of the magic is, you know, not not teaching people how to fix a specific problem, but teaching them a method to fit to yes. fix any any type problem. And and you know, we always say it's not it's not the golf club, it's the guy that's swinging the golf club that matters. So it's not the tool, uh, but you know, we we have a lot of tools that we use here. Uh, you know, A threes caught of eight step problem solving, uh, you know, sometimes just P, just simple PDSA with small tests of change. What are some of the tools I'd be interested? What are some of the tools that you guys use at, at Cleveland Clinic? Yeah, I think I think similar. Um, one thing, too, if, if I can add just before I answer that question about tools, something you said reminded me I wanted to share, you know, really at the end of the day, what we're all about at the Cleveland Clinic and the Continuous Improvement Department is building a culture where every caregiver is capable, empowered, and expected. So I think your question about tools points to that capability piece. Capability is all about, you know, when I have a problem in front of me, when I'm trying to improve something, do I know how to do that effectively? So we coach that in terms of problem solving, first you need to look at the problem that you have in front of you to know uh, what type of problem solving will be most effective. So we teach about, you know, just do it, root cause analysis, A3 thinking. Uh, we have a great system of Kaizen boards in many departments as often how people get started with problem solving because it's a good way to crowdsource ideas and start to build that ownership. Um, and I think to see some quick wins and early successes that get people engaged Uh, We're in the process of developing a much stronger daily operational management system um, and tying some of those tools together so that we can incorporate, you know, Pareto and root cause analysis and Kaizen uh, so that on a daily basis, we're able to to see and to track improvements. Um, But again, you know, I think the, the tools are important, but it's definitely, like you said, who's swinging the club and how they're swinging that club that really makes the biggest difference. Well, Sarah, it's been you know a pleasure talking to you and learning more about y'all's process at, at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, I I definitely learned a lot and know that we we can certainly take the those concepts of the OKRs and, and probably refine them and, and improve upon what we do here. Um, you know, before we we close out, or are there any other you know closing comments you want to give on the subject to the audience? 
The only thing I would offer is um, this is hard work and it's easy to get frustrated uh, from time to time. What I've learned through OKRs is that you just really have to live in it and practice and apply it to everything that you can and know that you can't do it all in the first year. Take the piece that you can take and then build on it and build on it and build on it and you will see progress. And I think that sticking with it and then always looking for opportunities of how are we going to evolve it next is what continues to create the next opportunity for the organization and, and also for our team. I think that was really great. I mean, I think a lot of people get intimidated if they don't have a large team like y'all may have or Baptist may have and this structure and framework in place already. They, they think they can't do it. But if you had if somebody at an organization, a small hospital wanted to start doing sort of this, what advice would you give them about how to start? Well, first of all, just start. It doesn't have mm-hmm. to be perfect. It's OK to be messy. I actually uh, took what I had learned at the Cleveland Clinic, and I recently just finished my term as president of the American Academy of Audiology. And we built a system of OKRs and started to put in place a uh-huh. management system. And even over you know, a couple years, I'm already hearing the feedback. We communicate better. Our purpose is clearer. We know what we're all working on. We can put the resources in the right place. Um, And I think that was a great example of, you know, a smaller organization where we started from the ground up and we just started somewhere. We didn't try to boil the ocean. We took a little bit at a time. And so my advice would just be just just get started. You have to see where you're having trouble before you can um, learn from the mistake and then you do it better the next time. Well, Dr. Sidlowski, once again, thank you very much. Uh, You know, give our best to uh, Dr. Yerian, Dr. Jericho, Tony. We've, they've all been guests on our podcast, and we've always had good, stimulating conversation. And on behalf of Baptist, thank you. And um, and listeners, uh, at the end of the show notes, you can register for uh, CME credit uh, and on your wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Thank you all.